This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Viv Saunders about her book that really is the first systematic attempt to both recount and evaluate the considerable yet undervalued contribution made by Welsh immigrants and their immediate descendants to the development of the United States. Her book is therefore titled Wales, the Welsh and the Making of America, was published by the University of Wales Press in 2021. um, And it details the lives and achievements within the narrative outline of American history to understand how Welsh um, and Welsh descended people impacted the United States, um, both before and after it became a country. So thank you very much, Viv Saunders, for joining us today on the podcast. And thank you for asking me, Miranda. To start off, could you please introduce yourself, your background a bit, and explain how you came to write this book? I was born and raised in Cardiff, and I never wanted to leave it, but um, I could never get um, a full-time job in the area. Um, I got degrees from Cardiff University and London University. Uh, I specialised initially in the Tudors and had some learned publications on that in um, academic journals. And the headmistress in the first school that I was teaching in, she said, oh, well, that's going to really shake the world, isn't it? You know, an article on Elizabeth's Archbishop, Matthew Palmer, Parker, um, which made me feel a bit bad. I liked teaching 11 to 18 year olds. I liked to see their uh, their brains develop during uh, those years and I taught them for over 30 years. I still do some um, teaching now of, uh, of children with, um, well, it's like a homeschooling um, over the internet and on the phone and things. So I do keep my hand in. Uh, back in the 1990s, American history became fashionable for um, A-level studies in um, in Britain, and typical whinging teacher. I was whinging to uh, Hodder, uh, well, you know, you're starting this course, all these courses on American history, and you haven't got any A-level textbooks for us. So they said, well, go on then, you do some. So uh, I did. Uh, I sort of 
have never stopped. Uh, I've done a, I lose count. I think it's about 20 A-level textbooks and IB textbooks and all on American history, although for the IB, I had to um, migrate a bit to Canada and Latin America. I'm supposedly retired, but I never, never seem to have any free time. I, I retired not to Cardiff, um, to but to the seaside to Porthcawl, which is about 20 miles down the coast from Cardiff. I spend uh, all my time either writing or volunteering uh, for the National Trust and for CADU, the the Welsh version of English heritage. So that's me. Wonderful. Thank you for explaining. Um, It certainly makes sense of why uh, the book covers such a wealth of aspects, right? It's, um, I, I admit, I wasn't necessarily expecting so much kind of explanation of American history built into it. Um, So it really shows the depth and breadth of your knowledge on the topic, um, which I think really makes the case for Welsh contributions quite strongly. Um, So given that this case seems pretty strong after reading your book, can you start off by explaining why you think Welsh and Welsh Welsh American contributions have in fact so far been ignored in this story? Um. Welsh people have certainly been much more aware than um, than Americans, uh, and I think that's because we're a, a sort of, um, I don't think you can even call us a nation, a, a people searching um, to retain some kind of, searching, trying to retain some kind of um, sense of identity. So, uh, and I think this is why we all go berserk over rugby, it's the desire uh, for some kind of national pride. So we don't ignore it. And in fact, Welsh people on the internet tend to put in um, loads of people who aren't really Welsh at all uh, or don't have any Welsh ancestry at all. Uh, but Americans aren't, um, aren't as um, aware as, um, as we are. Um, when I was a kid, we went to some, I think it was Carter Plantation um, in the Tidewater area of Virginia. And I nearly flipped when the guide said that one Carter ancestor came from a place in England called Wales. Uh, I was mortally <laughs> wounded. We're not, um, we don't have Welsh numbers that, went to America in in the same way that the English did, obviously, because we're a smaller country and, and nowhere near a, as many as, say, a group like the Irish or, or, or the Italians. So that helps explain why Americans are, are, are pretty um, uh, unaware um, of our contributions. We supposedly, um, even though we kept the, the Welsh language for one or two generations when we emigrated, we supposedly assimilated uh, pretty easily. We never got involved in any great foreign policy debates. Sometimes um, ethnic groups would get all excited if something awful uh, that they felt strongly about was happening back in their home country. Uh, but we we didn't have that because we remained sort of nicely squashed and obedient and, and, and nothing ever happened that got us excited anymore. Um, another reason why Americans are perhaps not not too aware of our contributions is that we settled earlier than um, than, than many other groups in the colonial period. So uh, if it goes further back, you're you're, you're less likely to uh, 
I suppose, to be remembered now. And also, um, most of our early, well, yeah, most of our early immigrants didn't settle in in cities they they were farming folk and if if you're um, an ethnic group in a city it's kind of easier to um to make people aware of you so i think those are the reasons why americans aren't particularly aware of us insufficient numbers assimilated pretty easily settled our first wave settled way back and, and and we weren't one of the vociferous urban groups. Like if you think, say, of the Boston Irish or Italian New Yorkers, they, they, they've always been much more vociferous and therefore noticed. Mm, that makes sense. Um, thank you for explaining that. And especially with reference to kind of groups we might be more familiar with. Um, but Aside, despite the sort of idea of assimilated more or were sort of quiet, um, you do describe in the book that there was a period of time, um, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this because I do not speak Welsh, um, but Madoc fever. What was this and how was it impactful in Wales and England and in what at the time were the American colonies? Well, our, our listeners will will all have heard of the um, the Madoc legend, this supposed twelfth century Welsh prince who um, established a Welsh colony in America. The impact that he had on England was that um, they got very excited about him, the English even more maybe than the Welsh, because he was useful for the um, Elizabethans who were explorers and would-be colonialists. He was useful for them to uh, justify their claims to America, to combat the, um, the the Spanish claims. And then the impact on America was the same. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson was president, he wanted to claim uh, the western part of America and of course the uh, the Spanish had um, little bits of it and it was good to challenge the Spanish by saying well we had uh, we had people uh, we have people that uh, that were there and then for the impact on Wales well again it comes back to that um, giving us a sense of, um, of of national pride the the great Madoc revivals in both America and um, and and Wales were the late um, 1700s, and it was encouraged by it was encouraged emigration basically because uh, some Welsh people had these rather sweet fantasies about living in a kind of Madoc colony. Um, you know, finding the place where he'd his descendants had mixed in with the uh, the Native Americans, and finding this place, living with them, and then living as an independent Welsh-speaking people who could freely practice their religion. So, uh, it's, sorry, I was just going to say it's yeah. totally discredited now. Um, I, I wanted a picture of um of a plaque that the Daughters of the American Revolution had um had put up in um, Mobile Bay. In, in in Alabama, because um, there was a picture on Wikipedia, but um, I don't think it was quite good enough. So I wrote to the national park, and you could almost feel the ice coming through their response and everything. They kind of threw a photograph at me. <laughs> um, I think it was a, even a bit more blurred than the Wikipedia one, because it's become people either think it's just a legend, 
which it probably is, and or that they don't like the um, the sort of white supremacist feelings behind it because. Um, like in the late 1700s and early 1800s, there were these thoughts that when they found um, some sophisticated fortifications um, in areas where Maddock and the Welsh had supposedly been, it had to have been built because it was sophisticated um, by uh, by white people. So it's politically incorrect, maybe as well as historically incorrect, to uh, to still be a Maddock fan. So I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned in that answer about religion being a reason for um, Welsh people to be excited about migrating to the American colonies. Um, Can you explain for us why that was such a motivation? It's it's fascinating for us, isn't it? Because we're such a secularised society and it's so hard for us to understand how excited they they got about it. Um, one of my favourite bits in, in in a rather dull chapter near the beginning of the book is about how two Quaker factions and lots of them were were Welsh in these factions uh, wielded axes at each other's wooden seating galleries in a Philadelphia meeting house in 1693. This was how much religion, because they were arguing about their interpretations of religion. Um, Meant, meant to people, it was enough to make you um, emigrate. So in, in the colonial era, um, so that's 17th, 18th century, um, probably a ma- majority of Welsh people were Protestant nonconformists. So there were loads of Baptists, Methodists and Quakers, and they naturally resented the um, the domination of the Anglican Church and having to pay tithes to it. You know, they were thinking, hey, this isn't our church. It's a, a an English imposition. But then there were some, um, some Welsh Anglicans um, also. And the point was that you could practice most varieties of Protestant nonconformity in peace in, in the American colonies. And then if if you sort of went to where your religious group was, and they, then they then you started to argue with them, well, you could move again. So that first group of Welsh settlers um, in the 1660s, they moved from the Plymouth colony in Massachusetts to southeastern Massachusetts. And the first Welsh settlers in Delaware were um, religiously disgruntled and and, and moved away from a church that they didn't like. It's quite funny. um, People emigrated for religious toleration for themselves, but it's only going to be religious toleration for me, not for anybody else kind of thing. If 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 you disagree with me, you've had it. It was that kind of mentality. Um. Although mostly religion was a motivator uh, when it was colonial America, um, Frank Lloyd Wright's maternal grandparents left West Wales as late as 1844 for the United States, partly because their um, Unitarian religious beliefs were so um, unpopular locally. Oh, and then in the 19th century, um, loads of Welsh Mormons emigrated um, to America, and and that was because um, Mormonism was hated and despised by the Protestant nonconformists in Wales and also in America. Um, one family 
the Roberts family in Ohio said in the mid 19th century that they the Mormons were as as bad as those that that followed the religion of Muhammad, and you couldn't give a worse insult than that, really. <laughs> um, yes, it was. It, it did seem in some of the cases you detail in the book to be quite extreme. You know, the the tyranny of small differences, I believe it's called. Um, but besides religion, why else did people want to emigrate? Surely that wasn't the only motivation. No, and and, and it varied in, in in the two great waves of of, of Welsh um, emigration. The first wave, the seventeenth, eighteenth, and early nineteenth century, they were mostly Welsh people from northern and western Wales, and their motivation partly economic. Um, the soil just isn't very good for for and, and there isn't very much of it because it gets all all hilly and mountainous up there um one welshman in 1791 urged emigration because it was ungrateful soil there and then in in the late 18th century they had several um years of crop failures rents were high in wales um often absentee and hated English landlords. And there was just plenty of cheaper and better land in America. And the word came back. Um, everybody wrote back about how wonderful it was and, and, and how you could better yourself there. Uh, and also, um, although there were mostly farmers, there, there was a textile industry in Montgomeryshire that had an economic depression in the late 1700s. And also in the late 1700s and early 1800s, there was the heavy taxation to finance um, the French wars and then the, um, then the Napoleonic wars. So the economic push and pull, um, it, it, it was great. And then there were uh, political, um, almost like political, refugees the idea in in the in the late 1700s that you could join a sort of community of maddock descendants um and 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 sort of be a, a real welsh nation and in fact the um the welsh quakers back in the um late 1600s they had the same idea uh, they thought that they could set up a a, a proper little mini welsh speaking nation but um William Penn had other ideas and, and they fell out with him. But going back to the seven, late 1700s, anyone who was politically radical, who had any sympathy for the American revolutionaries or the French revolutionaries, they were likely to get um, persecuted. And then there was a bit of social um, motivation too. I mean, it would be way down on the list of, um, of priorities. Um, the only example I can think of right now actually dates from the um, third quarter of the 19th century when one Welshman was delighted and amazed to find himself sitting alongside none other than President Ulysses S. Grant in a a Washington church and, and he thought how wonderful it was. So in the first wave, which I'd stop at the early 19th century, then it's mostly farming types and it's economic and political motivation primarily. Then the second wave is far more economic. It's purely economic. In the second half of the 19th century, it's mostly coal miners, um, slate workers, iron workers, tin workers. And 
it'll be that there's unemployment in uh, in Wales at a particular time or that they hear that the um, the wages are better or when the um, uh, the McKinley administration put a tariff on tin imports so that our Welsh tin industry just collapsed and so all our tin workers um, went, went out then. And then there's um, those that naturally wanted to join the gold rush. Um, I was fascinated to find out that one quarter of the population of Amador County, it's not actually a big county um, in California, uh, had Welsh ancestry. And that was obviously because um, loads of us greedily went there um, searching for gold. Hmm. Thank you for detailing the number of reasons. And I think, as you said, the kind of idea that it's probably for many people a combination and they sort of change over time. Um, so that was that was useful to sort of have that explained. Um, what is obviously the you're researching for this book a really extensive breadth in terms of time, um, in terms of different kinds of experiences. So there's a lot of different things that go into this, and I was wondering if there was anything you came across in the research or writing of this book that surprised you. It was the fact that. Wales had so many who converted to Mormonism and so many who who went to Utah, the Mormon promised land. When I was a kid, we uh, we were always touring America, and I I went to um, we went to Salt Lake City, and we <laughs> managed to get up early for once, which was rare, and we went to the to hear the uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir on a on a on a Sunday morning, and I can't remember who's they, they they sang the Ash Grove. That should, that that's a, a Welsh folk tune, and and I, I maybe should have twigged then, but I didn't. But uh, some choir master or somebody said, and 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 where is everybody from is, is is anyone sort of from out of state or anything so you know what you're like as a kid you think oh I could put my hand up and say but then I thought no I'm not going to put my hand up and say I'm from Wales because they just won't have heard of Wales but actually of course they all would have heard of Wales because of the um the the number of Welsh Mormons came it was a, a very persuasive Welsh-born um individual Dan Jones, who captain, uh, was captain of a, of a, of a Mississippi um, steamboat, and he met Joseph Smith, the, um, the the founder of the Mormon religion, who enthused him. And then Dan Jones became a missionary. He came back here and converted loads of people, I think mostly in industrial South Wales, but also... Um, up, up in North Wales, in in Landidno, um, Matty Hughes Cannon, who who turned out to be um, a very valuable and and, and famous uh, Welsh American. Um, the Mormon historians argue about how many Welsh settled um, in Utah. It, I think, about the highest um, estimate that I've seen is about twenty five thousand, and. From the censuses, the U.S. censuses, uh, so this would be pretty accurate. Fifteen percent of Utah's population um, had Welsh descent or was Welsh uh, by 1887. And a 1990 U.S. census um, revealed that 
within all the states, it was Utah that had the um, the highest percentage of people with Welsh ancestry. That would be because if you were a Mormon, you would tend to stay in Utah, whereas lo- although loads of Welsh went to Pennsylvania, they, they would have probably been far, far more mobile than uh, than anyone who went to Utah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Um, to talk about one of the kind of moments, obviously, of American history that is quite important, American independence, um, can you talk a little bit about the section in your book where you detail how Welsh people were involved in that process of independence? Right from the beginning, I think we, we in Pennsylvania anyway, um, helped shape the mindset. Although Quakers um, are pacifists, um, it seems that the Welsh Quakers were pretty obstreperous, cantankerous, vociferous, and, you know, I've said about them wielding axes at each other's chairs, not each other's persons. So um, they were occasionally um, a little violent too. Um, when William Penn was um, was setting up his colony, uh, well, yes, his proprietary colony in, in, in Pennsylvania, it was two Welsh-born people, Thomas Lloyd and David Lloyd, I think they must have been cousins, I can't work it out for sure, who caused him the most trouble. Um, David Lloyd in particular, maybe not because he was a great Democrat, but because it suited him in the battle against William Penn, um, was worked very hard in the in, in the Pennsylvania Assembly uh, to make it more significant and, and, and to, to, um, to have greater democracy, basically. So this is the kind of mentality then that we get um, round about the time of um, the 1760s and 1770s, several decades later. It's the, I'm independent, you can't tell me what to do. I'm basically ungovernable. I'm not going to be subject to, um, to, to one man. So that's the late 17th century. Then if we get to the, to the periods when, when it really heats up the 1760s and 1770s. Um, the Welsh-born, London-based nonconformist minister, Richard Price, was strongly supportive of the colonists. He, he wrote books um, arguing their case in, in the 1760s and 1770s and possibly even influenced the um, the Declaration of Independence. Um, a French historian with an unpronounceable name uh, for me, anyway, because I'm no good at languages, um, gave a very persuasive argument, um, emphasizing how Richard Price always used the words self-evident, sort of far more than any other contemporary writer. And then, of course, that comes into the most famous uh, phrases in the um, in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And they're really nice phrases. And they're, they're probably better than, uh, than 
definitely better than the ones that um, that Jefferson originally had. And it may be that um, that Richard Price's friend Benjamin Franklin, um, he befriended Franklin when Franklin uh, was in London for, for for several years. Maybe that Franklin um, was the one who felt that we hold these truths to be self-evident flowed much better than uh, than than what Jefferson had written. Mm-hmm. And Franklin wasn't the only founding father that. Um, that Richard Price was close to uh, after the Americans, after the war had started. Um, Price was in communication. In fact, he's a he's a bit of a naughty boy, really. He um, he actually told all his some of his American friends where our Brit- when and where our British troops were going to be deployed. So I, I suppose um, you could say that he was a traitor, but. Hmm. He was probably pretty valuable to the um, to the Americans in the, in the moral support that he um, that he gave them, hmm. and then in in the fighting, obviously um, Welsh immigrants and descendants of Welsh immigrants would have volunteered to fight some of them, and we provided two very influential um, generals who had um, Welsh parentage, Mad Anthony Wayne, who's battle at Stony Point in his victory at Stony Point in 1779 was good for morale um the american uh, the british took it back very soon afterwards but for the moment it it, it gave a, a morale boost when 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 it was felt to be needed um he was nicknamed mad because he lost so many of his um of his men and maybe because of some of the things he said, he famously said that he thought that God was rather thirsty for human gore. Hmm, goodness. Uh, and then a, quite a bit saner was General um, Daniel Morgan. He distinguished himself at the Battle of Saratoga and won the Battle of Cowpens. And they were they were both massive turning points. It was after Saratoga uh, that the French were inspired to come in because they thought, okay, the Americans maybe can win, and Cowpens was what started the British retreat back to the um, to the Virginia coast. And then we had some significant politicians. Um, Welsh people like to argue that virtually everybody who signed the Declaration of Independence was Welsh or or had Welsh ancestry, but um, the Eminent Professor David Williams of Aberystwyth back in the 40s um, only admitted to a, a, a few of, of the signatories being definitely Welsh or of Welsh ancestry. That was Francis Lewis, who was born in Landaff near Cardiff, Button Gwynett, who had close family connections in South Wales, including Dufferin House, where I do my nas- some of my National Trust volunteering, Thomas Jefferson, who proudly claimed that he had an ancestor from uh, from Snowdonia, and then um, I can't remember if David Williams said that you should include Robert Morris amongst those who um, had Welsh ancestry. But the Pennsylvania House of Representatives said that Robert Morris had Welsh ancestry. He's he's the one. That they call the financier of the um, of the American Revolution. Mm. Um, he kept George Washington's Continental Army in, in the field, 
And then, of course, less famous but still significant, there, there were those um, who were politically important at state level. So if you take um, the colony, as it was then, becoming a state of Pennsylvania, Samuel Meredith was treasurer of Pennsylvania. He was the son of Welsh immigrants. And John Nicholson was a Welsh immigrant, and he was controller general of um, of Pennsylvania. So we were everywhere. Hmm. Um, I was wondering then if you could sort of extend your uh, wonderful list of examples of people involved in independence to talking about some of the Welsh contributions uh, to the American economy, especially during the period of industrialization. I've got a couple of favourites there. Yeah, m- my first favorite chronologically is um is Oliver Evans um and when I look at these people who contributed to the industrialization of America I I really think that we gave America our best and our brightest and I think I always wonder what would have happened um, if they'd stayed, so if if you take Oliver Evans, then I'm so I'm surprised nobody's ever done um, a, a biography of him. It, it it wouldn't be my area. He's a bit too scientific for me. Um, his parents were Welsh settlers in Delaware's Welsh tracts. Um, he invented automation in a um, in in flour mills. It meant that you dealt with the grain uh, more speedily and you kept it cleaner. The um, The grain was propelled by a mixture of gravity, friction, water wheels, um, you know, to be made into, um, into flour. And loads of people pinched his idea, which he got really miffed about. He was always battling over his um, ownership of, of, of the ideas. Uh, the number of flour mills in America rocketed because of this easier way to do things. You could you could then do it as a business. And basically, he helped feed those who went off and, um, and conquered, a, uh, conquered a continent. He also invented smaller, more efficient, high-pressure steam engines that powered locomotives and, and steamboats. So he contributed to America's transportation revolution. Uh, but what tickles me about him is that he also had ideas for making things like a fridge, a solar-powered boiler, and a basic bread-making machine. If only Wales had managed to keep people like that. Mm. And then another favorite is David Thomas, born in the Neath Valley. He felt that if there had to be a reason why God had put anthracite coal alongside iron, and he discovered how to smelt iron with anthracite coal, which led to better and cheaper iron. And uh, an American company that sent agents over here recruited him, and he went over to uh, introduce his process to eastern Pennsylvania, and he's known as the father of the American anthracite industry. And then my third favorite one is a guy called Bill Jones, son of Welsh immigrants. He became a superintendent at um, Andrew Carnegie's Steelworks um, in Braddock, uh, just outside Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. 
Now, Bill Jones was a good guy, and because I'm on his side, I think of Andrew Carnegie as a bad guy. Bill Jones wanted his workers to have an eight-hour day. He thought it was just too much, the, the traditional 12-hour day in, 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 in the um, American steel industry. Carnegie let him have it for a while, but then reverted to the, uh, to the common uh, 12 hours. This Bill Jones was a great inventor. He invented the Jones hot metal mixer, which converted hot iron into steel. It was a speedier and cheaper process of, of, of producing steel. And that, that steel was, the, was what the bridges and the, the ever taller buildings of late 19th century America were, uh, were constructed from. He, um, Carnegie asked him to be um, a partner, but um, Bill Jones told his family that he, he never trusted Carnegie. He called him an oatmeal-eating, son-of-a-bitching Scotsman. And one of um, Bill Jones's descendant has, has written what I, I found a very persuasive um, kind of thesis thing, which you can access on the internet. Um this descendant tells of how Bill Jones had um, this terrible industrial accident, so common in the steelworks, but was expected to recover uh, by the local doctors. Then Carnegie sent his own doctor, and then Bill uh, quickly died. So, okay, you might not think much of that, but... Uh, a Carnegie representative visited um, the late Bill Jones's bedridden wife. Uh, she had multiple sclerosis and, and, and took a great deal of laudanum for the pain. And he just gave her $35,000 for all the patents, including that for the um, Jones mixer, which earned Carnegie millions. So she didn't get the the amount of money that um, that her husband's work um, merited. And perhaps the most convincing argument, even if Carnegie didn't bump him off, and, and even if you argued that his um, $35,000 was reasonable, well, that's hard to argue, um, Bill Jones had been planning to set up his own steel business and obviously, that would have rivaled um, the Carnegie business. And there are these um, gaps in surviving sources. Bill Jones was a very uh, organized, systematic individual, but supposedly left no up-to-date will. So you could maybe guess that the Carnegie man that visited the bedridden wife might have had something to do with that. And maybe most significant of all, and Carnegie's biographers always wonder about this, um, Bill Jones's correspondence with Carnegie for the last four years of Bill Jones's life is, uh, is missing. Hmm. So not only did Bill come up with a, with a great invention, but, um, it's a it's a really good murder mystery story that that his <laughs> descendant has come out with, and I was quite persuaded by it. Fascinating. Um, 
I was wondering if we could sort of go back to something you mentioned towards the beginning of the interview about the idea of Welsh um, contributions to American history being less remembered because the Welsh assimilated um, perhaps more than other groups. Um, why, you know, let's unpack that, right? Why did, was it that the Welsh wanted to assimilate more? Was it easier to assimilate? Um, tell us a bit about kind of that process. Yeah, um, several contemporaries, um, Americans, noted that we were uh, very keen to assimilate and, and keen to... Um, keen to adapt and and we had um a much higher rate of um naturalization of, of becoming citizens than even the english and 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 the scots so we were definitely um keen to assimilate um maybe because we didn't have a like, like lots of Italian immigrants liked to earn some money in America and then go back home because they loved their homeland. But maybe maybe the Welsh, maybe we loved our culture and our people more than our homeland because we felt that our homeland sort of belonged to somebody else, you know, having, having, been, uh, having been conquered. Um, why else did we um, assimilate easily? Um, I suppose because, and this would apply to all British people, it was American institutions or an, an American religious enthusiasm and the American ethos of of getting ahead. We we could all sympathise with that, and the guy that I'm working on now is um is a good example of um the enthusiasm and ease with which many Welsh assimilated, which is not to say that the Americans sometimes um, didn't uh, make fun of us. The guy I'm writing about at the moment, when he first stood for um, office, his opponents said that he'd been born in a land where uh, people lived in caves and, and still wore wooden clogs. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Although a lot of the time Americans were very welcoming, I think because Welsh people like to work hard and they were Protestant, um, every now and then you, you come across some um, <laughs> some prejudice against Welsh immigrants. Hmm. Um, I do want to ask you about your current project, but I have a few more questions about this book. Um, and the last few, um, we've spoken about a number of influential Welsh and Welsh-descended people in terms of American history. Um, and you've already mentioned this perhaps most famous one, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, made quite a large impact literally on the United States. Um, can you discuss sort of the impact that his Welsh heritage had on his work? When I was writing about Frank Lloyd Wright, I totally fell in love with him. He was... Um, an arrogant devil, but my goodness, he's 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 fascinating. Um, his mother was was Welsh born. Um, she came across with his grandparents, Richard Lloyd Jones and um, 
and Richard's wife, Mary, and, and her siblings. They emigrated, um, the Lloyd-Jones family, well, Richard Lloyd-Jones's branch of it, from West Wales in, um, in 1844 and settled in um, uh, uh, an already existing Welsh community near Spring Green in, in Wisconsin. Uh, three of Frank's Welsh uncles w- were already there. So his father um, deserted them pretty early. Uh, and so Frank's mother and his aunts uh, dominated his, his youth. And, and they were very much steeped in Welsh history, Welsh culture and, and, and Welsh traditions. And that's... Um, you know, having kind of been brainwashed into that, he added the name Lloyd. Uh, you know, in between the the Frank and the um, and the right, and took the family motto "Truth Against the World." In his um, autobiography, um, he really waxes lyrical about um, the joys of of Welsh family life, um, and the sort of the sense of, of belonging and timelessness and heritage that all flooded in on him um, when he frequently went around the Lloyd Jones burial ground in their um, in their Wisconsin valley. Um, hmm. Somebody said about his autobiography that it was sort of so lacking in punctuation that it sounded like a typical stream of of, of, of Welsh, um, a stream of consciousness, you know, from a talkative Welshman. He he said that he was typically Welsh in that he was a convincing liar. I'm not sure <laughs> that I should tell anybody that. He called his daughter Catherine Taffy and her daughter, so that's Frank's granddaughter, the, the famous actress um, Anne Baxter, who won her Oscar for All About Eve, the, the, the famous Betty Davis vehicle. She sometimes described herself as, um, as Welsh. Mm. Um, he had evidence of, uh, it's almost like a kind of fetish with him, I think. He had evidence of, of, of Welshness in, um, in, in his home o- over the fireplace, um, the Welsh the family motto, Truth Against the World, some Welsh writing. He had a Welsh harp. I, I was surprised that he only made one visit to us, and, and, and that was in, um, in, in 1956. He went to Lloyd George's tomb, uh, and he went to Port Merion and, and met up with um, Clough Williams Ellis, who, who said that Frank came across as more of a Welsh dreamer than he was. <laughs> so it meant a lot to him because it was all tied up with his um, with his family heritage. Now, as to the ways that it influenced his career and and work, well, experts in architecture and and, and uh, biographers have come up with two suggestions. The first is that he had typical Welsh feelings of of, of outsider status. Um, I can remember when I was teaching, someone who didn't know that I was Welsh said that all the Welsh had a chip on their shoulder. Uh, that's that sort of outsider status thing. And it may be that that helps explain 
his new and revolutionary approach to architecture because when he was starting out in in, in Chicago in the late 19th century, it was all European styles uh, that were the fashion and he rejected them. And he claimed, quite rightly, I think, that he'd created a, a, a real American architecture. Um, his His buildings were integrated with the landscape and reflective of it. So like his famous prairie houses are sort of low and flat and blend into the landscape and, and reflect the fact that the prairies are, are, are low and flat. So that's one suggestion as to how the um, his Welsh obsession influenced his work. And the other one is the, uh, the, the reverence for, um, for place. Um, the reverence that he demonstrated when he was um, forever wandering around the, um, the the family burial ground in in, in their Wisconsin um, valley. Hmm. So they're vague ideas, but I think there there probably is um, something uh, something in them. Well, and he clearly mentions it himself, so that's that's quite indicative. Um, in terms of kind of this book, not just in terms of its content, but as sort of a book. Um, you described in the beginning of the interview uh, that you obviously have are used to working with lots of different kinds of audiences, right? So secondary school students, people that come to National Trust places, things like that. Um, so with this book and its kind of particular angle contribution and uh, sort of the way it's written, who are you hoping reads this book? And where do you hope the study of Welsh people in America goes next? I hoped that um, that Welsh people w- would read it and feel, even though we were sort of complicit in, in stealing Native American land, I hoped Welsh people would feel um, a, a bit of pride in, the, in that we had produced some significant figures who'd contributed to the growth of, um, of the most powerful country in the world. And I hoped that um, Americans with, um, with Welsh ancestry would... Um, would read it too. And also, I think anyone who's ever thought about immigration and, and, and its impact and wondered about the um, advantages and disadvantages, I, I think by the end of the book, I thought how clear it is, how indisputable it is that immigrants can bring tremendous benefits to a country and also what a terrible loss they are for for the for the country that they um that that they leave um there were welsh newspapers in the 19th century saying oh everyone's going off to america and you know and we're only left with with, with the old in ill health so along with welsh people and americans of welsh ancestry i'd like anyone interested in the immigration debate to um to have a, a look at it now as to your question where would i like to see the study of welsh people in america go next i'm very bitter and twisted about this i had hoped that it would lead to a tv series well, it sounds like you've managed to pick yourself up and are working on a new project. So I was wondering if we could finish up the interview by you giving us a little sneak peek of what you're working on now. 
Yes, I don't. I don't think that one's going to um, to lead to a TV series. Um, I mentioned the person in 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 this um, in 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 the book, James J. Davis. Um, he was born in Tredegar, and his family emigrated, economic migrants, because the um, the iron industry was in decline in Tredegar, and and his father could never get. Um, be sure of steady employment. They emigrated when he was eight, and James J. Davis became a puddler in um, working in iron mills um, in in Pennsylvania. And then he went for um, elective office, um, county recorder, and things like that. And then he picked up this little fraternal society. It was the late. 1800s when an early 1900s when Americans were absolutely mad about uh, fraternal societies he picked up this one the loyal order of moose and it only had 260 members on a commission basis he went out and got hundreds of thousands of members for them and made it it was a really good charity um it paid the funeral expenses for its worker um lower class, if you like, membership. So it wasn't a posh one like like some of them. Um, he set up a school for the, uh, a, a sort of city school for the orphans of, um, of, of workers who had belonged to the um, loyal order of, uh, of Moose. So he, he did something wonderful there. And that um, brought him national attention. And um, he was then secretary of labor to uh, to the three republican presidents in the um in the 1920s harding coolidge and hoover and then he went into the um into the pennsylvania um well he represented pennsylvania in the, in in the us um senate nobody's ever written a biography of him partly because um <laughs> the guy talked and wrote so much i think there's about 50 boxes um in in the national library um, uh, not the national library the uh, something or other in um is it the national library of congress the library of congress i believe yeah. it just is and it may be either that he's just written too much or the people are sort of embarrassed about his race theories which were actually sadly common at that time, but I don't really think we should tell people off for, for thinking the same as everybody else thought at the same time. I mean, you'd have to be some kind of a, a genius to uplift yourself out of these um, these ideas that uh, that everyone's um, that everyone's got. So I'm slaving away on him and there's absolutely loads and loads of material. But it's not going, it's not, I don't know that there's a reason, maybe another reason why nobody's written a biography of him before is that um, maybe people think he's just not interesting enough, but I'm fascinated by him. <laughs> well, that's a good start. Um, well, while you work your way through those 50 boxes of documents. Um... <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm too old and too lazy. <laughs> well, while, while you work on it anyway, um, listeners can read your current book, again titled Wales, the Welsh and the Making of America, published by the University of Wales Press in 2021. Um, Viv Sanders, thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with us. And thank you too, Miranda.